Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 73rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of pandemic history, which we've been trying to do about once a month, and really glad to have another one of these discussions today with four wonderful historians. And today, we're going to focus on pre-modern pandemics and also talk about the connection those pandemics and epidemics to COVID-19 as well. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 25th, 2020, there are 9,506,788 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 9,158,912 reported yesterday. Of those, 2,407,167 are in the United States, up from 2,366,961 yesterday. There are now a total of 122,370 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 121,746 deaths reported yesterday. All right, let's... Turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my guests. Merle Eisenberg is a postdoctoral fellow at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center at the University of Maryland. He's both a cultural historian of late antiquity and a historian of pandemics. His ongoing work examines the Justinianic plague in the late antique world and its creation as the first plague pandemic in the 20th century. Along with Lee Mordecai, he hosts the Infectious Historians podcast that explores historical pandemics and pressing questions during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Lee Mordecai is an environmental and social historian at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He is co-PI of Princeton's CCHRI, Climate Change and History Research Initiative. And as just mentioned, he's a co-host with Merle Eisenberg of Infectious Historians podcast. His most recent work focuses on the Justinianic plague, but he has also published several pieces on pre-modern disasters in the Eastern Mediterranean, such as earthquakes and floods. Tim Newfield is an environmental historian and historical epidemiologist at Georgetown University with a particular interest in the disease and climate history of late antiquity and the Middle Ages. His recent articles have touched on the late antique history of malaria, measles, plague, rinderpest, and smallpox, and on late antique climate change and its influence on human health. Christina Sessa is an associate professor of history at The Ohio State University, whose research focuses on the culture and social worlds of the late Roman Empire. She is the author or editor of three books, including most recently Daily Life in Late Antiquity, out with Cambridge Press in 2017. Her new work engages with the so-called environmental turn in late ancient studies. She's currently writing a book on the history and historiography of disaster in late antiquity. And among those four historians, I can already see that there's gonna be so many books coming out. I'm gonna be very busy keeping up with all of their work. Tim, Christina, Lee, and Merle, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to start the way I've been starting these conversations, and this is gonna be 
interesting to begin this way and, and see what's happening where you are. If I could just get from you kind of a sense of where you're calling from, how the pandemic is playing out there right now. And if you'd like to also expand a little bit and talk about how social protests may be playing out where you are. I'd like to hear that too. But Christina, could I start with you? Sure. And thanks for having me. Um, I am uh, talking to you all now from a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. Um, we are one of these states where we are unfortunately starting to tick back up again. We had been pretty successful and flattening the curve. It's not as bad as Texas or Florida, but um, it is unfortunately going up again. Um, in terms of social justice protests uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement, that has had a really quite exciting and big, uh, broad support in, in Columbus. And there have been protests going on um, pretty much every day on some level last month. Um, and these have been happening both in the downtown area, but also, which is, I think, really quite extraordinary in the kind of whitest of suburbs as well. Um, there has been quite a bit of police violence. The police had sort of promised they were no longer going to uh, use mace and pepper spray. Um, they famously used it a couple of weeks ago against actually a congresswoman, a U.S. congresswoman who was marching got maced. Um, and unfortunately, they seem to have gone back on their words. So I do, I do have concerns about, you know, where that's going to go. So yeah, it's Columbus is definitely doing its work to try to make, to try to address the social inequities that we need to address. You know, Ohio is certainly a quintessential bellwether state in American politics. Your governor is Republican there? He is, Mike DeWine. Um, and you know, he's a career politician. He's pretty conservative, although he's not a, he's on a Trump, a Trumpist. Is that what you say, a Trumpist? Um, and he, in the beginning, was really out in front uh, of the COVID Epidemic, uh, pandemic, and we were one of the first states to start to shut down. Um, he had these really quite well, uh, well attended, well watched daily up, uh, ups, um, updatings of everything, and um, and it got to the point where, unfortunately, our Republican Congress sort of put the quash on all of this, and things opened up too quickly. And um, anyway, but yeah, we have a Republican. Uh, governor who's been doing okay. Uh, thank you for that context there. Tim, could I turn to you? Sure. Um, I'm in Toronto in Canada. Uh, we had roughly 279 cases reported across the country uh, yesterday. Or was that the day before? I don't know. Um, and about uh, 163 of those were Ontario, in Ontario, which is where Toronto sits. So the worst province, if you can say it's doing poorly would be the one that I'm in, but things are generally not looking that bad here. One can go get a haircut now. One can go sit on a patio. This is only as of a couple of days ago, though there's a lot of public pushback saying that we shouldn't even be doing that. Yeah. Um, and there have been a number of uh, Black Lives, <laughs> sorry, I have a speech impediment, BLM protests uh, here as well. Uh, there's a, another large protest planned for Tro in Toronto this coming weekend. But even in the in uh, 10 or s many hours north of where I am, there are uh, protests as, as well, which is really nice to see. 
this uh, the way you described getting a haircut or sitting on a pa- on a patio. I had this intense upswelling of of just like I don't know what the right word there is <laughs> jealousy. I guess it is. I think that's what I'm feeling right now <laughs> to describe it in that way. Is there use of um, masks there widespread as well, or that's not necessary at this time? It's expected that every, uh-huh. everyone wears a mask. I have a few. I have a few myself. Okay. And Thank you. One. Thanks for that. Um, Lee, let's turn to you. Yeah, so I'm in Jerusalem, Israel, downtown Jerusalem, Israel. We, I mean, the worst, we thought the worst was behind us. At the best point here, and in Israel in general, I, I mean, we reached a point in which we had, let's say, between 10 and 20 new infections per day. Israel is a country with about 9 million people. We've so far had about 300 deaths just to like frame things a bit better. So after this low point that we reached something like, I'd say, several weeks ago, we're currently on our second wave. The infections are considerably higher now, roughly between, let's say, 200 and 400 per day. Yesterday, we had the worst day since early April, which just means that we're, we're heading into not so good times. But on the street, I mean, you can pr- do pretty much everything. So yes, we could get haircuts. Yes, we could sit in restaurants now. We University still hasn't reopened. Our semester is actually finishing, ending in, in a few days. So we've taught this entire semester online. But other than that, I mean, things are pretty much back to normal. We'll wait and see how, how, how this second wave affects things. As for social protests, I am sorry to say, but we have none. The health service there in Israel is a very centrally organized national health system there? Yeah, it's a much more centralized system compared to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So people, there won't be much local variability uh, in terms of how people are, are interpreting the pandemic or the kind of actions they might take? There would. So, so some areas are definitely better funded than others. Mm-hmm. But broadly speaking, you can show up at any hospital and you'd get treated. And every, pretty much everyone is insured and, and would get treated. I mean, again, some groups, some populations in Israel would probably do worse for various cultural or socioeconomic reasons. But broadly speaking, I think compared to other countries, we've had like a much lighter touch of COVID. Merle, can you give us the update from where you are? Sure. So uh, I'm in Annapolis, uh, Maryland, um, which is where Sysink is located. It's not at College Park. Um, and I would say, for the most part, we're pretty much opening up. Um, there was a, a sign that a guy put out in front of his yard every day with jokes um, and with little riddles and fun things like that to do uh, that he's since put away because we're on phase two reopening. Um, so that's no longer there. So things are, I would say, moving back to normal. Um, in terms of mask use and that type of stuff, what I've started to notice is kind of a a dichotomy between two populations in Annapolis. It's a very resort town. Um, there are lots of giant, I don't even know how much they cost, huge yachts uh, parked uh, not far from my house. Um, and so those populations that are visiting 
tend to seem to not be wearing masks nearly as much as if you go to, say, the grocery store, you go to a mall and everyone's masked up um, versus the people eating outdoors are kind of holding masks in their hands and that kind of stuff. Um, and in terms of protests, there have been a number of protests in downtown Annapolis before they opened up. They basically shut down the streets. Um, but it's basically been the police haven't had any heavy handed tactics, um, which is really nice to see. Um, basically, the only thing that you would in some ways know is happening is there's lots of helicopters circling around, but they're not police helicopters. They're news helicopters. Um, so that's been very positive to see. And the Naval Academy has been closed at this time. Yeah, they were sent home as well. I have a colleague whose son just graduated from there. Um, and so they've been home the whole time uh, doing online learning like everyone else. Um, I think they're going to bring in the next first year. I forgot what that is technically called, but the next first year of students in. Um, but they're in, in Navy Army base, right? So they can quarantine everything and shut everything down as it were to begin with. Oh, well, thank you all for that. I, I want to start with a kind of general question. I have to make a confession um, as a historian that um, has worked on, only ever really worked on modern history and even then 20th century history. That when I was in graduate school and had colleagues who were doing pre-modern work, I was always I, astounded by what they did and a little terrified because <laughs> I never could get my mind around what kind of sources you might be using. So for a 20th century historical problem, we just take it for granted, particularly if we're studying industrialized countries, there's going to be a trove of documents, way too many documents for any question you want to approach. I'm just going to go and find, you know, various different agencies, more than I can count, and I'll have plenty to work with. In an afternoon, I can spin up a general sense um, of a trajectory in history. Now, maybe I'm misunderstanding, and you can tell me um, uh, in the, in the pre-modern world, uh, that I'm wrong about sources. Um, but I, I want to start with that, just sort of thinking with you a little bit about the challenges of doing historical research on sort of modern history of medicine, modern pandemics versus the time periods that, that you work in. Tina, could you take us into that a little bit and then we'll yeah. go from there? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, in a sense, there are kind of two, we have sort of two, we want to think about it very broadly, two sets of sources. We have sources that we often referred to as kind of historical sources. It, it, this is specifically sources for things like the history of disease and pandemics. We have, we call sort of historical sources. So these would be uh, writings as well as archeological um, remains, artifacts, remains of buildings, et cetera, um, that were created by and left by the people whom we're studying. Um, and, and those have lots of, promises and they're, you know, there are some of them are created by eyewitnesses to a pandemic, for example. Um, they also come with a lot of challenges. Um, they're not often not really written to give us the answers to the questions that we're asking. Um, and so you have to be very careful and learn how to read these texts and sort of appreciate how these people are constructing the sources and the narratives the way they are. And obviously archaeology has its own set of challenges. Um, and then there's this sort of other set of evidence that's in some ways a lot newer. And I would say my, the three other people on this panel are in a much better position than I to, to talk about it. 
Um, but we do have this kind of natural uh, evidence, these so-called natural sources. And, and here I'm talking about things particularly like paleogenetics. We can now um, say something concrete about the um, genetic makeup of the pathogens that caused certain diseases in the ancient world. And these are done in, in very specialized labs. Um, there are only a handful of them all over the world. Um, and, and of course, this work is not being really done. It's not being done by historians. It's being done by scientists. Um, and that, of course, also poses all sorts of interpretive issues. Um, so that's sort of the nutshell, and maybe somebody else wants to jump in, and I'm happy to talk more, but I, I, again, I think people on this panel have spent a lot of time looking at those, particularly those quote-unquote natural sources, so I'm going to let others jump Thanks in. for opening that. Tim, can I come to you? Because you you're also identify as a historical epidemiologist, so maybe you have something to say also about this use of source material. Sure. Uh, in terms of the written material, there isn't really a lot, especially compared to the 20th century or the 19th or the 18th or the 12th or the 8th. Um, uh, no, wait, I take that back. The 8th is particularly bad. The 9th the ninth is loaded with, with uh, material. Um, but still, Scott, if you like, we could send you afterwards a slew of PDFs of very long histories uh, written in different parts of the late antique world, whether uh, in continental Europe or the Eastern Mediterranean. I would say there's far more material available for the Eastern Mediterranean for the Byzantine world and the former Byzantine world than there is for the quote-unquote Latin or Christian West, um, with one major exception, uh, someone who wrote in the 500s, Gregory of Tours, I guess we could also talk about Paul the Deacon and Bede and yada yada. So, yeah, there are good sources, I would say, but there's not a lot of source material. Um, and that has its advantages and disadvantages when attempting to mesh that data or to marry that data with this new flood of material, ever-growing flood of material coming from the natural sciences, from evolutionary biology and paleogenomics Um yeah, so there's a lot of challenges there, but there's a lot of different types of data. And also, we sh maybe should specify that there's um, a range of different categories of written source material. So we have these narrative sort of histories, we have hagiographies, we have legal texts. Um, and then if someone is fortunate enough to work in Egypt, then there's a wide range of material. And you can start talking about a whole different type of history that can be done if one does the social and economic history of Egypt. Yeah, can I just jump in and say one thing quickly? So there were people kept lots of records in the in the ancient world. I mean, we, we know they did. We just don't have a lot of them. <laughs> and, and that, of course, is frustrating because we know we kept them, although I think we should also point out that they kept them for reasons that are not really the reasons we might have wanted them to be keeping records. So this is a, a period that is pre-statistical. There's no concept of a statistic. While there's lots of numbers in our texts, they don't correspond to what we would call a statistic. So when we want to ask questions about, you know, how many people died or and, and look to our written sources and they give us a number, we have to be very careful because that number isn't a statistic. That's not been, been sort of formulated by sifting through data. Um, that's not why people collected data in, in the ancient world. It's not why they kept records. And so 
you have to kind of walk through that process before you can even start to really understand what it is our sources are telling us even about these pandemics. Well, Lee, let me turn to you and, and Merle, because I know you're, you're sharing a, a project, working on a project together, right? Um, can you take, take us into that case and maybe some of these things that Tina and Tim are talking about? And let's map it onto the work you're doing. So, so I guess I can start by saying that if, if you'd ask me to research any, I don't know, 20th century question, I would be extremely intimidated. There simply is so much. And, and being used to, I mean, being able to read everything there is more or less in my, for my questions, which is usually, as Tina and Tim said, not that much. Having essentially endless amounts of sources is, is kind of overwhelming to me. So I'm, I'm, I'd rather stay in, in, in the pre-modern times. I, I think, though, that, that one of the ways in which, in which I'm excited to work in, in pre-modern times is that, yes, on one hand, the source material is very limited, but on, on the other hand, you can get to be very creative in the way you find and use new sources of information. You can make arguments, for example, about, you know, let's say, how inscriptions may or may not be a source in itself. How can you use inscriptions, which is inscriptions on stones, so, so inscriptions inscribed on stones created back then, so in, in late antique times. And, and this creativity is really one of the, the main advantages I have working in this period. So just figure out a question and think about other ways in which I could use the limited resources we have at hand to try to illuminate, cast light on whatever, uh, on the question that, that we're interested in answering. Yeah, let me give you a good example of something that Lee and I have done, and Tim was also part of this project, which was um, an article we wrote in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a, one of the uh, premier science journals. Um, and that was deliberately written and placed there so that we could speak with and to scientists rather than historians, right? I mean, I think many of your listeners and all of us here are certainly very familiar with how to read a source and be critical of it, right? I mean, that's the bread and butter of what we all learn in our methodology course. But that's not something, as we all know, that that scientists are necessarily trained to do. Um, so what we did in this piece was put together a whole series of evidence. So we used written sources that we might be used to, inscriptions, like Lee mentioned. We used archaeology. So, you know, as we've seen already in, in COVID-19 and other pandemics, we looked for signs of, say, mass graves, right? Do we have a larger number of mass graves that might suggest a pandemic? Um, we looked at the ancient DNA evidence that Tim talked about. And we also looked at stuff like pollen data. Right. So if you drill cores into the ground, you can get a sense of how much wheat people are growing or how many trees there are in a land. Um, and if you see more wheat, right, then you have more agricultural uh, cultivation and thus usually more people. And we see very strong evidence across, you know, most historical time periods of that being the case. And so we put together all these sources for the time period we work on, on the Justinianic plague to see if we had any of these what we call proxy data of a pandemic happening. I just want to stay with you for a second, Merle, mm -hmm. on this. What you're describing to me feels methodologically pretty astounding. It, is this an inflection point, bringing together these these multiple different approaches simultaneously? Was it textually based for a long time to the extent that it could be and has now moved into bringing in these multiple different, more um, artifactual or even natural historical sorts of source materials? I think a lot of the 
what what CCRHRI, which Lee and, and Tim and actually all of us are part of, um, that's done a really good job of doing is all of these different ways of looking at the past have been there uh, for a while. I mean, the ancient DNA is, is certainly newer, but a lot of it has been around. I think what's groundbreaking, I think, in that article and through other work that, that Tim and others are doing is to bring them all together, right? To bring specialists who actually know how to use the data and we learn to talk to each other. And this is something uh, Lee and I have talked a lot about. I know other people have talked a lot about, but the power of collaborating with people um, as historians, right? I mean, we're used to all writing single monograph books, single article books. Um, but if we bring the power of all these people together who are specialists in the pollen, specialists in the inscription, specialists on the papyri going on down the list, and each person contributes and you're able to talk across different fields, that really has an innovative synthesis power to it. Lee, you wanted to come in on that? Yeah, so, so just to, to point out, I mean, following what, what, what the three other guests here are saying, so Merle, Tina, and Tim, it's important to say that these all these new sources are very exciting and they're from all over the place and things we may have not thought about before in the, in the past. But none of these sources is perfect. And it's very important to stress that. So each of these sources has its own problems, just like our literary sources, the ones we are we, we were trained to use have problems. Mm -hmm. And really trying to mitigate or ameliorate these problems or challenges is, is a key point. A key point, which some of it, which is in print, but some of which is just, I guess, us bouncing ideas back at each other. What works better than what works better? What might not work as as as, as well? So, so it's it's important to say that this is not a. I mean, this doesn't solve all our problems, and it right. will not solve all, all our problems. And even collaborating, as Merle said, which personally I also I agree is the way forward. Just collaborating is not enough. And, and there is a way, there are different ways in which you can collaborate much more efficiently and other ways in which you could collaborate and that actually won't bring you much forward. I'm just putting something together here that I should have put together before, though, that your affiliation with the climate change history research, um, which in and of itself is, a, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, a relatively recent um, sort of interdisciplinary field of which history is part um, is, is really fascinating here in this regard. So which comes first, uh, antique antiquity pandemic research or climate change research, or did the two, like, help me understand here a little bit how you may be asking similar questions of climate change researchers. So are you asking me or are you asking like everyone? Uh, that's uh, anybody who wants to pick it up. I thought maybe Lee, you might want to take a first crack at it, but I'm open to that because I hadn't thought about the connection among those two, but I should have thought of it immediately. So what began, so for me, I started working on this as a, as a graduate student at Princeton where I met Tim and a few other people as well. It all started for me looking at environmental history, broadly speaking, and within environmental history, I personally it was much more drawn to disasters for whatever reason. So it started, my interest started with earthquakes and trying to figure out how to, how could we learn more about earthquakes in the past? And then it was like two and a half years ago, I branched into diseases and inf infectious diseases with Merle, who just joined us back then. So that, that's my, my background here.
want to remind uh, folks you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking to Tim Newfield, Tina Sessa, Lee Mordecai, and Merle Eisenberg. I want to, maybe we can dive into cases a little bit and get into some specifics. So Tim, you want to come back on this question of the climate change or anything we were just talking about? I, yeah, if, if, if I could, just to go back to something that Merle had said before, Please. This is something that I've been vocal about uh, for a while and, and more needs to be said still that, and I think this is a really uh, a prominent problem in, in, in environmental history in general in all periods and all regions that environmental history is conducted the way that history is conducted. You know, we're all trained to work in isolation. We all favor and prize the monograph. Our departments want to hear about the monograph. Our institutions want to hear about the monograph. But that is not the model that is suited to the sort of research that needs to be done if we're going to do it right, right? So if I can, someone needs to be able to treat paleoclimatological data with the same criticism that they can treat the written sources that they were trained to use as a graduate student over the course of five or six years. And that never really happens. So we have had for many decades historians that are essentially interdisciplinary historians that are juggling data that they have no real training in. Um, I've done it and I've failed at it. Um, I have been told uh, point blank face to face by a prominent dendroclimatologist uh, why are you trying to do essentially what I do? We should work together. And he then said, it's as if I was going to go spend the next three week, three months, maybe as said three weeks, learning Latin so I can read your sources for you and then I don't need you. And this is what how historians work. We just take it all on. We juggle everything, but we can't treat everything as well uh, with the same degree of criticism. And I think that just leads the problems are just endless there. So we really need to be working in collaborative teams, scholars that are pulled together that are interested in similar issues, but that can control the data. Everyone can control their own data. Everyone is involved in the project from the ground floor. We can't have historians that are essentially running loose with natural scientific data. They need to be monitored. If I, can. <laughs> I really appreciate the, these issues you're bringing to the fore. And of course, they're entirely apt at this moment in which we are in an extended sort of um, scrutiny of the value of the humanities and the pressures and stresses on history departments. And I've been actually, Tim, to your point, it's something I've been talking about with colleagues a lot. You know, um, what do we need to? Should we be making films? Should we be doing what you're talking about, like paleoclimatology and these sorts of things? I think the answer inevitably is yes. But as you just said, that doesn't mean I I'm going to go out now and make a a great film. It's that I need to figure out how to be part of a team that has filmmaking as part of its skill set and bring what a historian can bring to that to then maybe create something that goes well beyond what we can do individually. And I would just share that uh, upgrading you got that you shared with us. Uh, I had that from a fire protection engineer. They were pretty polite about it, but they kind of said, what do you think? Why do you think you understand what's happening inside this building with fire? Just because you understand the history of fire codes um, and that was a useful discussion to me. And now we co-author things together. But <laughs> so, cool. um, Tina, can I come back to you? And I, I want to get in. I want to talk a little bit about some of the cases. And we can put a little because we've talked about methods here. We talked a little about historiography. What are you working on? Well, actually, a book that is about disaster. And I'm interested in disaster from two different, but I think important 
interlocking perspectives. And the first is historical. I'm, I want to understand better how people in late antiquity understood disaster. Um, that word disaster, by the way, it sounds Latin-y and it, it actually is Latinate, but it's 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 a medieval neologism. Um, there's no word that like, sounds like disaster in Latin. Um, and there were other words that they used, but that's part of it. You know, what was their vocabulary to, to describe a calamitous kind of event? And, and what did, you know, what kinds of events did they tend to sort of see in those terms? And how did they experience them? And, and trying to understand this both is a, a kind of cultural question about meaning, but also as a social experience as well. So that's half the, the project. And I should say, too, I, it's a project that started about war. That was my first kind of disaster context that I was interested in. And I've just become sort of fascinated how war is often paired with other types, earthquakes, plagues. I mean, typically these things are paired, you know, all together. Um, what does that mean? Right. And then the other part of it uh, goes back to something actually Lee said. He's like, I'm just interested in disaster. I don't know why. I think everybody who works in late antiquity is interested in disaster. It's this period, right? It's the fall of Rome. Uh, and it's a period that it's the historiography is shot through with discussions of disaster. Why? Why do we think as historians, disaster is so good to think with? Right. So that's the other part of this. And, and so I'm trying to kind of get at it from both of those angles and in part to maybe free us up a little bit as historians of this really fascinating period when so many things are changing um, to kind of understand ourselves better why we're so preoccupied with disaster. Can you get, share with us just a little bit of a coming attraction here in the sense of you said you're sort of looking for the ways that um, maybe in the Roman Empire they weren't framing disaster even with the same kind of language that we would use. Can you take us a little into the mindset? Is sure. disasters uh, were not yeah. ruptures? They were continuities, or what? How are you? Yeah, how, so, what are you finding? Um, they could be both, but I actually think typically disasters were more uh, as something that was expected. It was part of a kind of cyclical framework of history. Um, chronicles, right? This is this particular genre of ancient and medieval source where, um, actually it's really late ancient invention in many ways. And it's a, it's a basically, it's like pared down history where, you know, you get a year and you get a sort of really dense description of what that particular chronicler thought was worth mentioning for that year. And dis plagues, uh, war, uh, earthquakes are repeatedly, um, you know, included in that. And so I think in that respect, they're, they're seen as part of the kind of time frame, which, of course, for the people that I'm talking about were, were mostly Christians. And so there's a kind of Christian understanding of time. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily an unusual thing for these kinds of events to happen. Um, on the other hand, they could be used by scholars, by historians writing in the period as a kind of narrative device for, in many ways, talking about something else and, and could be put to the task mm -hmm. of, of, you know, initiating some kind of rupture. Um, whether it really was a rupture, of course, is, is the question, right? And so actually, Justinian Quake is a good example of that, because in a couple of our 
sources that we have written by people who were themselves alive at the time. Um, in one of the cases that I'm thinking about, John of Ephesus, I mean, it is a rupture. It is this kind of catastrophic sounding event, the way he describes it. Um, yet, as Merle and Lee have shown, it kind of wasn't. <laughs> and so how do we understand those two different impulses, right? How do we understand, on the one hand, this kind of narrative insistence that this was a absolutely kind of apocalyptic moment with all this other evidence that suggests, well, actually, you know, it was probably bad at the time, but things kind of just kept ticking along and it wasn't really a rupture in history. Um, so that's the kind of question I'm trying to get at. Oh, thank you for that. Let's, I want to, so I want to learn more about it because I honestly don't really know about the Justiniac plague. So Merle, can you set the stage for us and maybe Lee, sure. can, you guys can pass this back and forth a little bit. Uh, as, as I like to say, I have a good potted history of the Justinianic plague. Um, <laughs> I think we all do at this point, Merle. <laughs> yeah, at some point I'm waiting for Lee to just like yell at me. But, when I keep saying, well, I'm asking please. listeners now, raise your hand if you've heard of it. Seeing no, 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 no. hand. Wanna... <laughs> no, so just the, the, the Justinianic plague, um, to put it in its broader context before I tell you about it in particular, there's three major plague pandemics in human history, right? At least as we label them. Now, these are completely artificial, they're completely constructed, and they don't actually work in terms of if you look at the empirical data, but this is how we think about them. The first is the Justinianic plague, um, which I'll talk about in a second. The second is probably what many listeners are familiar with, which is the Black Death and the second plague pandemic, which goes from about, let's call it the 1340s, initially to the early 1350s, but then continues in a series of outbreaks up until the early 18th century, famously in Marseille in 1720. It doesn't actually stop at that point, but it stops in Western Europe. And then there's a third plague pandemic, which breaks out in central China in 1855 or so. Um, it becomes globalized from Hong Kong in the 1890s. And this is when it's discovered by Alexander Yersin. Um, most famously, so it's now named after him, the bacterium, uh, Yersinia pestis, and that lasts till about the 1950s. So that's the three plague pandemics in history. Uh, the Justinianic plague in particular is said to start in the year 541 and to last until the, about the year 750. So as I always tell people, if you think we're living through this and it's been, you know, 14 odd weeks, in theory, they lived through this for two centuries, um, is the famous story. Um, and it starts famously in Egypt, spreads from there to Constantinople, which is modern day Istanbul, um, and then through the rest of Eurasia. Um, and as the famous story goes, and maybe I'll turn it off to Lee at this point to kind of talk about our research in particular, uh, famously, it supposedly kills somewhere between a third and half the population of Western Europe, um, which is somewhere between 15, and you can see numbers upward of 100 million people. I don't see how that can't be perceived as a rupture in society, and, and yet Tina's telling us it may not be as rupturous as we thought. Lee, tell us more about the research. Yeah, so the research project, it's actually like several different papers at this point, and they all seem to point towards the same conclusion or a roughly similar conclusion, which is to say that plague likely, I mean, we would argue that it is highly unlikely that plague killed as many people as is often claimed. So instead of throwing out numbers such as 15 million or 100 million or 25% or 50% of the population, we cannot know how many people died because of 
various issues such as the ones Tina mentioned earlier on. But it seems to us, having read, I'd say, almost everything, if not everything that's out there at this point, I mean, one of the advantages, again, in pre-modern studies, there isn't all that much to, to be read. There's like, I think we read like several hundred articles or so at this point and kind of covered everything important. The evidence just isn't there for that kind of drastic effect. And I can go over several of the sources that Merle mentioned. We can go over the literary evidence that we've analyzed. And each of those would be a dive in or a, dive, a deep dive in. But, but at, at a high level, that's, that's our argument, that plague was not as, as drastic, did not cause that high mortality. And because it did not cause that high mortality, the various social and cultural effects that are tied to plague that argument kind of falls apart. Now, there is a counter argument that says that actually plague might have not killed as many people, but still had cultural and social effects. But that argument is very difficult to refute by any means. I mean, it's just an argument and, and it's not a strong argument, I would say, although I'm sure others might disagree. And we might also add to that, that the um, idea that uh, plague didn't kill a lot of people, but still had major uh, major cultural influences, major cultural influences. Those ideas were initially founded on the idea that plague killed many people. Mm. And now that part of the story has been dropped, and yet the conclusions somehow remain the same. So, I mean, it does raise a sort of fundamental problem in disaster studies, I think, across the board, is the predilection of death counting as the synchronon of whether or not you've had a disaster or not. Uh, and I think even in the modern United States, um, obviously, no one would argue that September 11 was not a disaster with great implications. And yet you know, we passed the September 11 death count of COVID-19 very early in the pandemic in the United States. So and, and I read those death statistics uh, at the beginning of every COVID calls that I do and in part as a way to establish a historical record. But even that acknowledging that um, it's one form of measure. Um, that can sometimes lead us maybe to some conclusions of magnitudes that are not appropriate, certainly with the scale of time. I don't, I don't know if others have a, a reaction to that. Lee, did you want to come in on that? And then Tim? Yeah, I, I actually have a pretty strong reaction to that. And that is to say that, I mean, as Tina said earlier on, we can't always trust our sources. We don't really have good statistics. I mean, we don't have statistics once we look back into late antique times. And there is an impression that I added that impression that, for modern times, I mean, 21st century, Western countries, we know the numbers. The numbers are very obvious, right? There's like, it's either 13 people died or 14 people died and 13 corpses or 14 corpses. I mean, what's the question here? But I think that once we actually look at different disasters, and I can throw out a few of these disasters, such as, for example, a good example would be the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Yeah, which may kill, may have killed something between 46,000 people or maybe 316,000 people. So it's a pretty big, a big gap over there. So you could obviously counter and say, yes, Haiti is, is not really a developed, not really a Western world country, but take Hurricane Maria, for example, in, in Puerto Rico. How many people died there? And once we look into that question, we can see that there are a lot of, there are a lot of vested interests and in, in attaching the numbers to a disaster. In this particular case, for example, the United States government argued for several months 
that the number of deaths was somewhere around 60 or 70. Uh, other researchers with researchers, media outlets, we, we can get into the details if anyone's interested. And there's actually a pretty good Wikipedia page on this specifically. I think it's called Hurricane Maria uh, Death Toll Controversy. So long, short, long story short, the, the current value, the current estimate is about 3,000. So again, two orders of magnitude more, more or less. And that's in a Western country, a rich country. So how the way in which we measure the impacts of these disasters, even today, is far from being clear. And the numbers we attach to these numbers has have all these very different, very complex uh, political, social, cultural, economic, I mean, you name it, mm-hmm. uh, imp- impacts or effects. Yeah. I just wanted to point out also that the Justinianic plague didn't occur in a vacuum. It's always treated like it occurred in a vacuum because it's plague and everyone loves plague and everyone knows about plague, but everyone forgets about all the other epidemics that that, uh, occurred a few years before and a few years after it. So the idea that we'd be able to single Mm -hmm. it out and and establish the cultural implications of it and ignore everything else is totally absurd. And then we also need to point out that the cultural impacts alleged for the Justinianic plague are very roughly dated and sometimes span tens of years, sometimes more than that. So we can't really, the whole idea that we can say it's that plague, even though it didn't kill a lot of people, that's the one that did this. I don't think that really stays above water. Tina, do you want to Yeah, on two things. Just first of all, to add on to what Tim just said about, co- about comorbidity, right? I mean, the, the infectious disease in the pre-modern period was rampant and routine. I mean, there just was disease all the time. Sometimes it was cyclical, like Tim works on malaria, that comes at certain times of the year, it goes. But people, and so the idea that somehow we, and in fact, if you even look carefully at some of our sources that are these eyewitness accounts, they're not... It's not clear they're only talking about people dying from one disease, um, which is a whole other kind of problem with a lot of this stuff. Um, But but what I really wanted to talk about was how, you know, our obsession, our modern obsession with statistics, I think, gets us into all sorts of trouble Mm -hmm. in trying to understand what is the cultural impact of a disaster on a community. And so, for example, you know, you think about something like taking care of dead bodies, taking care of the dead. And we saw in New York City how much of a problem everywhere, right, where your grandmother dies and she's died of COVID and you, you can't have a funeral. And the the number of people who have died of COVID is, is, a, is a small fraction of our total population in this country. It's, um, it's larger than the number of people who normally die of, of illness, but it's still a relatively small fraction. Yet, how many times we've read these wrenching stories about people who can't attend the funeral of a loved one, or they don't have enough space in the morgue for the bodies, and they have to bring these big refrigerated trucks right out behind and and dig these enormous, I'll never forget those images from Hearts Island off, off, you know, Nick's in Manhattan, where they were basically creating these mass graves. And what's so interesting is that if you go back and look at some of the ancient sources, and I'm here, I'm thinking, again, of these two sources we have that are contemporary to Justinianic plague, what do they both talk about is this, like how difficult it was for families to bury their dead. Mass graves. Exactly. And not necessarily mass graves. I mean, that, yes, we have a little bit of evidence of literary evidence. There's very little archaeological evidence. 
Sure. There's a very famous reference to a supposed mass grave that Justinian uh, ordered to be created during the Justinianic plague. And by the way, that's why we call it the Justinianic plague, because it broke out during the reign of the emperor Justinian, right. which may not be part of everybody. Um, but, but we have lots of really like extraordinarily graphic descriptions of dead bodies just lying all over the place, you know, exploding with pus. I mean, it, you know, our, our writers go for it. But the point is that how do you, you know, dealing with bodies when it just you, you there's like a tipping point in, in society mm-hmm. with dealing with this thing. And once you, you reach that tipping point, it, it really disrupts. And that need not be the same thing as right, wiping out some you know, massive pr- proportion of society to cause that kind of right. psychological and social damage. That's, that to me is something I'd noted that even reading across, you know, from Defoe to Camus and, you know, more contemporary descriptions as a, a kind of a common theme in describing um, a, some sort of a tipping point in which it seems that a, a pandemic has moved into something that's unmanageable is when you exceed the capacity of the normal metabolism of life and death. And of course, the ultimate example of that, I guess, is disposal of of the dead. And I mean, Camus writes about it in such a way, too, that's so, I mean, talking about families stalking death trains and throwing flowers from above from hillsides down so that they fall into open train cars because they're not allowed to get close to the to the dead. And we have descriptions from COVID-19 that are not that different um, from that. I guess I want to, there's so much more to talk about, but I just want to get to this for a second. Um, So then should we be talking about COVID-19 at the same time that we're talking about pre-modern pandemics? I mean, we just did kind of effortlessly now looking for themes that might cut across, but I think all of us are probably equally uncomfortable with essentializing accounts of human behavior across time. So maybe help me out a little bit with this. What are the pros and cons of thinking about COVID-19 in the same in the same conversation as we think about it with Justinianic plague or any of the others you're looking at? Merle, can I start with you on that? Sure. So I'll say the the question for, there's two questions really there. One is for historians and one is for, I guess, us taking off our historian's hat and thinking just as we live through the day. For historians, what I would say is the danger of using COVID-19 or actually really using the Black Death, right? That's the famous historical case that probably you and many of our listeners have heard of, right? Is the Black Death is the famous outbreak of plague that kills so many people. Um, And really the Black Death has been used as the the model, um, Leo and I have called it the plague concept, um, as an overriding idea that's really imposed upon the Justinianic plague, right? You just take Mm -hmm. the Black Death and you stick it back on the Justinianic plague. Um, and we can already see in some responses people have had to our work taking the COVID-19 example and actually now using that as the concept to stick back on the Justinianic plague. Mm-hmm. Um, so we obviously know we're living through profound economic, aside from other things, implications. And so if we're living through that now, well, of course, the Justinianic plague must be the same. This is, of course, a r- ridiculous argument because we live in a very service-focused you know, 21st century society, we're not 90% of the people working the land as peasants, right? It's a completely different structure of social, economic, cultural life. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen that already. So that's on one hand. And on the other hand, I would say, um, I think we have to be careful for using comparisons because what we have seen in a lot of literature, at least I have, is simple 
conclusions that we can draw from, right? So the most famous that I've seen probably 15 times now um, is uh, the Black Death was bad, but at least it ended feudalism, right? So at least the economic way of life got better. And aside from the fact this is factually wrong, which I think most historians would would say, um, it gives us easy solutions, right? It, it allows us right. to say, if we just sit there, life will somehow get better, right? I, and I think, if, among other things, what, what a lot of the Black Lives protests have shown is that it takes a lot of hard work to create a better society if that's what you want out of it. And so I'd say that's the ultimate problem with uh, past comparisons. I see. Uh, Tim, can you come in on that? Uh, you were saying before what historians can do in this moment, and I think historians can reach out and engage more with uh, not only the people that provide or write the media content that we're all absorbing and we're all being it's all being inflicted upon us, but also in the sciences and really anyone that is looking to use history in order to put the present in, into context. Because I think the past more more or less has just been used to sensationalize the present. Um, and I think there's a lot of danger with that because what we're going through here is nothing like what we went through before. It's very hard to be a pre-modern plague in 2020, and yet that's what everyone seems to want this to be. And um, yeah, so I think historians should both seize upon this as an opportunity to advertise their work in uh, past disease, but far more importantly, engage with people that uh, are responsible for communicating I'm not phrasing this very well. It's been a long day and I have a six-year-old on my clock all day long. Um, Merle has two kids. I don't know how he does it. Uh, yeah. So what I was going to say was that um, historians need to reach out and be more involved in the communication of history to the general public because the, most of the history that we're seeing is either anachronistic or so simplified that it doesn't work. It misrepresents the, both the present and the past somehow. Uh, and really history could be used well here in order to communicate some useful, maybe me, I don't want to say it, but useful lessons um, and just used in a way that would not just provoke and spark fear, which I think is what we've seen. I mean, the New York times was drawing the comparison between COVID-19 and the 1918 Spanish influenza or the 1917-1920 influenza pandemic as early as January 25th. Right. When there were very few cases, um, it was absolutely absurd. And then I went through their archives recently online. And by March 1st, they had made the connection 17 times. Um, it's just ludicrous how eager they were to make that link and to not really support it. My head is tingling here. I'm gonna, but I want to pace myself a little bit. I want to ask you, I want to follow up on that. Because do you think kind of like what Merle was saying, because in the span of a 800-word newspaper article, they need to be able to throw in a historical case to then frame it in, in some sort of a we will recover kind of narrative. Is that is that generally, as you read it, sounds like you've been reading very closely the Times coverage, for example, or is it they want to say that the opposite, that this may be slower and harder to resolve. I would think reaching for the 1918 example is one that might have said to people, hey, Trump might not be telling you the full story here. This might go a bit longer than you're 
than you're yeah. expecting. How are you seeing those cases used in journalistic practice? Well, in in March and April, it wasn't about we will recover. It was about we are going to suffer greatly. And then right. the connections were made between the Black Death and uh, and right. the 1917-1920 uh, influenza pandemic. Like even if we look at Bergamo, which I think lost, I was looking in their newspaper, roughly 3% of its population, and that was the hardest hit city in the entire Italian peninsula. And in some ways we have to, and I don't know if Tina's going to like this, but I think that we need to throw numbers at these comparisons in order to uh, stop them. Because as soon as we start drawing even rough guesstimate mortalities of the Black Death in the same region compared to a 3% mortality loss of one city in northern Italy, I don't know. The connection is just, what I'm trying to say is the connection is A, absurd, and B, dangerous, because uh, the vast majority of people don't have an education in disease history and don't really know what these epidemics were like. And if they're told repeatedly that COVID-19 is the next Black Death or the next, quote-unquote, Spanish influenza, uh, then, you know, that might have mental health, mental health, uh, might cause mental health issues. Tina, can I get your, your reaction to that? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't disagree about, you know, comparison is means comparison, right? I mean, that, and that we need to do the hard work, not just kind of throw out a famous pandemic from the past because it, it, it rings a bell with people. I mean, that's often, I mean, the Black Death, right, gets, you know, you, and you have a picture of the guy with the plague mask on. I mean, it's very famous and everybody knows what it is. And there are all sorts of, of, you know, enticing theories about which which are mostly wrong. For example, it ended feudalism, this idea that plague is the great leveler. It is not. It was never not. Disease is not a great leveler. I think if anything, it's the opposite. Um, you know who I'm talking about. Um, and I, um, I, I think that's right. I think you have, I mean, one of the interesting questions, and I would love if, if I can ask a question to throw back at everybody. I mean, would anybody in the sixth century have noticed COVID? I mean, would COVID have even like piqued anyone's curiosity? Because given that it doesn't have an infection rate, anything or or a fatality rate, anything close to bubonic plague. And remember, there's no antibiotics. So what you 60 to 80 percent of the people who are infected die from it. I mean, it depending on the kind you get, blah, blah, blah. Um, so would you even have noticed it? I mean, I'm not sure anybody would have even noticed COVID. I mean, why go back to the 6th century? Would people <laughs> in the early 20th century notice it, right? Would yeah. people today yeah. notice it if we didn't have, like, science to tell us that? I, I am not yeah. sure at all. Yeah. I think it definitely would have flown under the radar in the 6th century or any pandemic century or any regular century. <laughs> but to clarify, because the death, the excess deaths. I mean, we still have this discussion going on in the United States in certain parts of the United States um, that you might be pneumonia and COVID-19 unless you, I mean, even cases where we have sophisticated health departments, they might be counting one as one thing and one as another. So comorbidity issues, but then also just the count and the amount of time within which you're counting. Is that, are those kind of some of the issues you're talking about and why it wouldn't have shown up in the sixth century or another time? Well, nobody was counting. Right. <laughs> I okay. mean, there was no counting. No okay. one was counting. I'm sorry, I'm stuck yeah, yeah. in this sort no, of like no, no, modern no, okay. conception I, that I, all is counted, but of course it isn't, right. as Lee pointed out. there would have been no way, way to have discerned on a, on a microbiological level 
why somebody was sick, right? Because there was no, sorry, go on. You no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. So there's no, so we, we understand pathogens make us sick and that they are these kind of non-human entity that we coexist with. But in the, in the pre-modern world, people didn't know, they had no microscopes. They had no concept of a pathogen. There was an understanding of contagion. It's certainly not true that nobody understood what contagion meant. They did. Um, and in fact, one of the things our sources tell us is that people often flee when there starts to become a, a, an epidemic of, of in, in any kind of city, which, by the way, is where most of these things take place, right? Because you needed these sort of dense urban environments to really reproduce the, the disease at a level to become an epidemic, um, which is another argument against it killed off 50% of the population because 90% of the population didn't live in a city. Um, but so I think you have to, um, you know, I I hear what you're saying, Scott, and I'm not trying to, um, belittle or, or, or discount the severity of COVID. We all need to take COVID seriously. We all need to wear a mask. It's not a big deal. Put one on, get over yourself. I'm all with you on that. But I think if you compare COVID, which is a, you know, in some cases a fatal respiratory disease, um, to something like bubonic plague, where you your body literally starts to erupt in like with pus or smallpox or some of these other diseases that I think would have been much more unusual to, to people um, and and kill just a lot more people without the the, the access to the, the therapies that we have now. I, I don't. I think a lot more people did die from these things. I think they were a lot more impactful in terms of in a demographic sense, even though we can't measure that demographic sense. It's certainly true that COVID-19 doesn't, or SARS-CoV-2 doesn't manifest itself in as disgusting a way, perhaps you might say, as smallpox or uh, the bubonic variety of plague. Um, at the same time, though, just speaking about the mortality stats, so officially... 675,000 people died during the quote-unquote Spanish influenza in the U.S. alone, 675,000 people. And if we do the uh, the bad math and inflate to represent modern-day numbers, that's something like 2.3 million. Globally, we're somewhere around the conservative estimate would be if we were to inflate for modern-day population numbers around 110 million. So in, I, don't, I don't think we need to go really farther than that. Just the comparison is fraught with many, many problems. Merle, you've been trying to get in on this, so. Yeah, no, I was just going to add, which I think Tina hinted upon as well, which is people in the ancient world and the late ancient world are dying of so many things so frequently, right? You know, small children are getting the flu or small children are getting whatever disease it might be, you know, and dying so frequently, um, as well as older people and really everyone of every age, that a, a another respiratory illness that kills people, but not at a 50% rate is going to, I think that's why Tina's saying is going to kind of go, relatively speaking, unnoticed. Um, if SARS, sorry, just one last bit, bit, bit if I could, if SARS-CoV-2 was going to spill over in 541, it would have struggled to find a large population of people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, to kill. Let's see. One of the other possibilities is sometimes pointed out, you know, the, the value of disaster research in the social sciences and humanities is um, as a revelatory structure. So that, in fact, we may be talking about 
you know, death counts, or we may be talking about how many buildings were collapsed, you know, and I think that's a, that's a discussion we want to have, but that indeed what it does, and maybe this is appropriate to what we're talking about here, what's happened in the last few weeks, that it, it actually reveals power structures within society quite effectively, and that that becomes provocative in its own. So to not think of a disaster as an event, as some, some only external event, but as actually as a revelatory process that shows power relations that might be obscured or that people don't want to want to look at. I wonder in your own work if it if you find that as well. I mean, is I'm, I, I'm not going to ask this. Well, I guess I'm going to ask this. I mean, is there a pre-modern Trump? Is there a is a sense in which plagues in the ancient world somehow reveal other inadequacies of society that have less to do with body counting and more to do with the political economy? Lee, I don't know. Let me bring that to you. So, I mean, again, there is a question of how big was the Justinianic plague and how good are our sources for it? So I would actually not answer that question for the Justinianic plague, but I would answer it for other disasters that are happening. For example, earthquakes, specifically earthquakes in, I mean, places I've studied them were in Eastern Mediterranean cities. So for example, the pretty important city of Antioch, it does sustain multiple earthquakes over the sixth century, does sustain some bubonic plague at least, it sustains a, a series of other disasters as well, anything from enemy raids, wars, raids, it, cattle plagues and so on. And I think that by looking at those disasters and their effects, and how the system, the overall system, so the imperial system at, at a higher level, if we zoom in to, to the city level at a somewhat lower level. So I do think that looking at how the system reacts to these disasters does tell us much more about the power structures that, that govern that city. Now, I'm, I'm very much aware of, of this argument in disaster studies, but within this conversation, this brings me back to one of the things Tina said earlier on. It, because I think that once we start looking at these power structures, we almost by necessity distance ourselves from the human experience or the people who actually are experiencing these disasters. And for me, there's some kind of tension between mm -hmm. both these poles. Yeah, I feel that too. I feel that a lot as I think about uh, disaster, because if it's only just a window into some other thing, you maybe you somehow negate the, the culture that's actually also produced in that moment. But I, I don't think that, they're mutually exclusive. I think that simultaneity is, is possible there. But what you just described very efficiently was a problematic that I think disaster studies kind of struggles with. Tina, you want to speak to that or lead anybody? No, I'll, I'll I, just oh, you, go, 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 Lee, go, Lee. I'll, I'll follow no, Just like in one sentence, I think it's at least somewhat disciplinary. Uh, different disciplines, social sciences, humanities tend to look at different things, look for different things. And I think that that's one of the things that, that's in play here. I mean, yeah, we, we need to be more flexible in our thinking and be able to to maintain both these ideas at the same time in, in our thought, but also in our work. No, absolutely. And I, I was just going to say, I mean, I one of the things I've spent a lot of time working on and thinking about is what happens to a community um, in the wake of a disaster. And the one that I've spent the most time looking at is our sieges of cities, it, it, because we have a lot of evidence of this and, and um, a lot of literary evidence, but not just sort of narrative sources, but a lot of legal sources. And what it seems like what happens, which kind of gets to this sort of structure plus 
individual experience trying to bring them together is that people tend to flee. They tend to just run away and they abandon where they live. They often, and they, with that, they abandon their property. And that property could be a physical house. It could also be a flock of sheep. And they abandon the property. And very often what seems to happen at that moment is somebody opportunistically comes in and takes it. And so it's a sort of classic case where somebody's loss is somebody's gain. Um, and then you have these legal sources later on that are trying to work out who owns what. And I think this is the kind of like real life, but also structural kind of problems. You've got a, you don't have a, a, a strong state in a modern sense to kind of, you know, impose martial law and stop people from doing this. Um, you also don't have a, a, the kind of litigious, flexible legal system, or semi-flexible that we have. But you do have some capacity to, to kind of adjudicate a dispute. And, but the question of who got to do that, it probably wasn't the really poor person who has, you know, a small flock of sheep that the more powerful landowner who could afford to stay, you know, more or less put and, and take that, you know, the, the small guy is going to lose to the big guy. So you can sort of see that worked out, I think, a little bit in how people respond to these disasters. That's a fascinating case to think with there, because then so people who are what you're talking about, perhaps more itinerant or have less capital or whatever it may be, exactly. and they have to flee for whatever reason. Whoever's already there, whoever has more is going to then absorb that land. You're mapping that over. Which case are you seeing that in? I am seeing that um, in time and time again, when you look at descriptions in, in both historical sources, but also in I said legal sources um, when you can pin it to a particular war. So, for example, I looked a lot at a war that happened actually simultaneous to the Justinianic plague. As somebody said, there was a lot of other things. I think it was Tim. There's a lot of other things going on. And there was a 20 year war going on in Italy um, between two major powers. Um, and, and there's actually really quite good evidence both during the war and then after the war and the kind of cleanup. And so the Gothic War, is it's, is it's what it's known as, is, is one of my, my good case studies. But I've seen this in other sources, and I see this in ecclesiastical sources. I look a lot at church literature. Um, I'm a mostly trained as an historian of early Christianity. So I've looked a lot at this from that angle, from the angle of ecclesiastical material. So now it's, it's interesting um, how, and this happens, it's a pattern. It's a clear pattern in this period. I was talking with people in Port Arthur, Texas, um, back when you could do things like that. And, um, and people who are still recovering from Hurricane Harvey. So here again, I'm making a reach across many millennia here, but let's go that, um, these are fence line communities. They were there first, and then the plants came after. And because of the flooding and the repetitive flooding, they're they're um, they're leaving. They're selling out, and they're selling out to the to the petrochemical plants. It's a version of what you're describing. Is whole parts of coastal Texas have become sacrifice zones to petrochemical industry. And this is it's not a secret at all that the petrochemical plants see this as a long term strategy of how they build bigger buffer zones between themselves and people who could sue them for benzene exposure. So here you have an example where the disaster actually reveals a sort of underlying power structure, which is a longer term dispute over ten land tenancy and exposure to chemicals that I think is not to me. It's not a it's a quite useful way to think actually across time in this regard to what you're to what you're describing. 
we have a few minutes left. We're almost up on time. Um, this has been a great discussion for me. Certainly, I've learned a ton. I guess maybe we can finish however you you like. If there's something we didn't touch on that you want to get to, or um, maybe if each of you wanted to share your best pitch to graduate students who are coming up and still haven't decided what area of time they want to work at. You all described a very complicated set of skills that you've you've developed and yet so compelling and not unuseful for our moment. So what's your pitch for pandemic history, Merle? Um, okay, so I'll make my pitch. I don't know if I would tell anyone to go to graduate school. I'm on. I'm in that camp. All right, uh, that's a good proviso. With the proviso that we're not saying anybody should follow this advice, but go ahead and now give the advice. Sure. What I'll say is this, and this is something that, that Lee and I have been working on more and more, which is to read not just the sources in your own time period, so the Justinianic plague being the 6th, 7th, and middle of the 8th century, but also reading the 19th and 20th century sources to see how those shape how people at that time and ultimately how we still today think about pandemics. Um, so there's a history of the study of pandemics, right, which you can kind of chop into three parts across the 20th century, relatively roughly. Um, you have a, a discovery of bacteriology, um, a sense that, you know, we had to fight something. We have a sense in the middle that we conquered plague. There's a famous book called by uh, Fabian Hurst called The Conquest of Plague, um, where they officially beat plague. I mean, that's literally the point of the book in the WHO. And you have this middle period of the 20th century where there's really a sense that we've beaten infectious diseases. And that's actually where this idea of, 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 of illness as a metaphor, as I think Susan Sontag famously put it, right, um, about that it reveals things rather than actually killing people because fewer people were actually physically dying. Um, and then you have a phase that's really starts with the AIDS pandemic and, you know, becomes really pronounced in, in the early 90s um, about infectious diseases. And that's actually where you see the histories in our time period of the Justinianic plague really pick back up again of, of become an interest, um, but often still working in the thought processes and the paradigms of the people of the early 20th century still. Um, so learning that has taught us a lot. You, so you see a, actually a surge of interest in pre-modern plagues with the AIDS crisis. Yes, although I would say when it comes to just Justinianic plague, it's a little later. So it's actually mm -hmm. the early 90s um, with a lot of having to do with um, uh, uh, Ebola. Um, and move, you can actually track this very nicely as, as Lee and I are doing through movies and film um, is a nice way to do this. Lee, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, so I guess just provide my, my take on or advice to graduate students. Uh, maybe, oh yeah, I'll, I'll separate it into a few pieces of advice. One would be to talk to people outside your regular circles, talk to people who are not historians, who are academics in, in random fields. You would never know what you might find. I mean, talking to an infectious disease modeler ended me up writing a paper on modeling the, the Justinianic plague, so a mathematical model. I'm not sure I understand until now, but I think these interactions are very helpful in broadening the way we think. So that would be a positive note. But we're more on a more pessimistic note, I would think very, very carefully before committing yourself as a graduate student to do work on something like this. This is partially a reason, uh, partially because of the job market and how it is currently structured. 
who, what jobs are, even before COVID-19, right? So which jobs are opening? What are those jobs looking for? What is valued in those jobs? Is So I guess my main piece of advice here would also be that, that you should probably have some more traditional main project and, and do this as a side project. This is what I did. For example, I, I, I was very fortunate to have this work for me, but I would not recommend my my students to, to do the same, to, to like focus on environmental collaborative history in the same sense. Yeah, I should just jump in that for Lee and I, this was completely a side project um, that started as I was finishing my dissertation. Um, I would work late at night on this. Yeah, side projects have a funny way of becoming the project. Um, Tim? <clears throat> um, well, I went to university to become a high school history teacher and then volunteered at high school and woke up to that reality. And so I happened to go to university uh, where a prominent environmental historian was. So I started doing environmental history from the get-go of uh, the first year of my undergrad. Um, two prominent environmental historians, actually. Accidental. So it was great. Um, at some point in graduate school, I was told to stop focusing on non-human disease. So a lot of my early work was on cattle plagues. Uh, if I kept doing cattle plagues, I would be considered a weirdo on the job market. So I started doing human disease. Um, but I would say to someone interested in this to pursue an interdisciplinary PhD program, one where you can get a PhD both in the in, 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 in infectious disease sciences or in disease preparedness and history at the same time uh, and really do something that is fresh and would be striking uh, on the job market, whatever it may look like uh, in five years from now or so. But I would, I would push someone or indicate some or suggest to someone that they uh, um, do something across disciplinary lines from the beginning of their graduate education become not only conversant in multiple fields of study but actually produce the data that historians love to consume that's that is such strong advice and i think for those who may be worrying about the declension of history departments as they're traditionally configured but now we see the growth of resilience institutes and public health centers and there's going to be places for this kind of interest i'm convinced of it places for this interdisciplinary analytical skill that you're that you're describing tina i'm going to give you the the last word to close us out not that you have to summarize everything this conversation has been wide-ranging but yeah. well let me bring us back to history and science right which is this the the relationship between the two of them and and you know these every one thing everyone said is correct. Like this kind of collaborative interdisciplinary work is absolutely crucial. But I still think we have not yet quite worked out methodologically what that means. Scientists and historians ask different questions, they use different skill sets, and they really aren't often on the same page, even though they'll like try to fudge it a little bit or a lot. And so if I'm speaking to graduate students, my advice would be go out and make this your goal. Start diving into the history of science, diving into the history of, of medicine. And we need people to work. We actually need a, a methodological model for how these two very different disciplines um, and the differences are, are myriad. I mean, we've talked about them in all different ways. Um, 
it's not just the question of getting like, you know, the, the scientist, the, the climate guy with the historian and they, you know, the historian reads the text, the climate guy looks at the ice cores and, oh, yes, we worked it out. It's not that simple. And so what we need is our people to think about this in a, in a sustained methodological way, which I think we can. So and I suspect it will be the historians of science who will actually solve this problem. So that's my my sort of claim. Go, go history of science. <laughs> go history of science. Well, as a graduate of the Department of the History of Science at Johns Hopkins University, I want to say that I did not pay Tina to give that endorsement for the history of science, but it is a space that does encourage you from the beginning um, to get outside of a normal comfort zone, um, particularly after you get past those first year comps where you have to memorize things about Copernicus that you may not use again. And well, I shouldn't talk badly about Copernicus to you all. Never mind. But um, that that it does invite that kind of that kind of multidisciplinarity, I, I think. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and just give a little pitch for tomorrow, five o'clock Eastern time. We're going to be talking about COVID nineteen in Brazil with Rosanna Dent and Gilberto Huckman. And please join us every weekday at five o'clock Eastern time for COVID calls. And I want to thank my guests for today: Tim Newfield, Tina Sessa, Lee Mordecai, and Merle Eisenberg for this really um, just great conversation. Uh, thank you all. Stay healthy and keep in touch. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having us.